Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Social Leader Podcast, episode number 11, where our goal is to help you learn to lead with greater social impact. I'm Father Justin Matthews. Hey, real quick, before we begin today's episode, I want to let you know that this podcast is presented by Reconciliation Services, which is a nonprofit social venture based in Kansas City, working to cultivate a community that is seeking racial and economic reconciliation so that we can reveal the strength of all. You can find out more about our programs and even support our work at rs3101.org. And also today's show is sponsored by Thelma's Kitchen, Kansas City's first donate what you can restaurant open for lunch again, hopefully starting in July. Okay, let's jump into episode number 11. Well, welcome back. I am so excited to have my guest today. She's a longtime friend and somebody that I really admire in the community. My guest today is Councilwoman Melissa Robinson. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you for having me. Hello. Hello. Well, I want to make sure people know who you are. You began your social service career at the Ad Hoc Group Against Crime, where you served as the Director of Crisis Intervention, and you've assisted families in navigating the region's social service and criminal justice system. You went on and became the president of the Black Healthcare Coalition, and you've been leading efforts for years to address the social determinants of health in our community. You have spent time in so many different organizations and on so many different boards, I couldn't begin to name them all, but just a few. You've received leadership awards from a variety of different institutions and organizations, including the Environmental Protection Agency, Kansas City, Missouri chapter of the NAACP, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, just to name a few. I'm sure I missed a bunch, but you were also uh, named in Kansas City a 40 under 40 by Ingram's Magazine. You formerly served as uh, a member of the Public Improvement Advisory Council with the city, the Healthcare Foundation, Greater Kansas City Community Advisory Council, and you were also the former board president of the Kansas City Public Schools. Of course, not the least of which now you serve as councilwoman in the third district for Kansas City, Missouri. So again, mm -hmm. Melissa, thank you so much and welcome to the Social Leader Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to share and to be with you always and to have conversation. Absolutely. Well, welcome. Well, I want to dive right in to our conversation and, and really get into uh, what we want to talk about today. So first and foremost, you know, on this podcast, we're really trying to learn how to be social leaders, meaning how do we begin as leaders, as community members, no matter who we are in every sector, to begin to lead with greater social impact. So I would love for you just to share with our listeners a little bit about how you got on this trajectory of being a social leader, how you got to the place where you could, as you said in a recent speech, connect the dots and really lead people for social change. Where did that begin for you? Um, thank you so much for the question and the opportunity to just share my story, my personal story, in that I um, grew up here in Kansas City and I um, experienced uh, the throes of adolescence and had um, challenges in my 
father actually was looking for opportunities for myself and my brother to connect in ways that will help us to advance our academics. And he came up on the Ad Hoc Group Against Crime. I was a client of the Ad Hoc Group Against Crime with their Runaway Prevention and Intervention Program. And as I graduated from high school, uh, many of my friends were getting retail jobs and looking for places they could go out of town to uh, go to college. And I really wanted to be able to give back to the community that so much gave back to me and wanted to also look at how do I provide a foundation for my career in a way that is embedded in social service. And so that led me to uh, reaching out to Mr. Alvin Brooks. He was then the president of the Ad Hoc Group Against Crime. And I asked him for a job and he said, well, he didn't really know me that well. I participated in programming and things of that nature for several, for a couple of years. And he said, well, if you could write a grant, uh, and you know this because as being an executive director, you know, when you bring on staff, it's like, where am I going to find the dollars? And see, he said, well, you know, if you could write a grant to um, help fund a position, then um, we might have a place for you. And that was when the Kaufman Foundation had a youth advisory board, and they had these very small grants, not not nearly enough to be able to fund a position. But I wrote that grant with my teacher, my home ec teacher at North Kansas City High School. Your <laughs> and, home ec teacher. That's awesome. <laughs> yes. And um, it was funded and the rest is history. But always thinking about where are ways, what are things that you can do that are very immediate right in front of your eyes in which you could step in to provide some leadership for. At the time, the Ad Hoc Group Against Crime didn't have a runaway program. And because I was a product of that program, I wanted to add some innovation to it from a real um, perspective, as from the client perspective. And so I did that. I served as the coordinator of the Runaway Prevention and Intervention Program, helping to get to what were some of the things that were happening? Me as a young person graduating from high school, having conversations with parents about, well, you know, when this started out when they were eight or nine and not providing structure for them, and now they're 14 and 15, and you don't have that physical ability to restrain them, the structure that wasn't provided or is providing these um this area of chaos. And so mm -hmm. how do you then go back and rebuild those structures with now kids that are 14, 15 and 16? And so I really immensely enjoy that work. Um, and then just evolve from there of working with homicide victims and then ended up at the ad hoc, uh, at the uh, Black Healthcare Coalition. And so I don't want to just kind of take up so much time talking about um, story after story, but um, there were some really critical, pivotal points. Um, I was a part of the Urban League of Greater Kansas City. They had a leadership development institute that was fabulous. Um, and that's where I learned that everyone has a leadership lane. Um, and so you just have to be able to walk into that leadership lane, whether you are the janitor of a company, a accountant, um, wherever you are on that spectrum, you have a voice in which you can lead and you can influence. Absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head for what we focus on uh, with the Social Leader Podcast. And it's that idea that everybody, no matter who you are, what sector you're in, what your job is, 
you can be a social leader. It just takes a lot of intention. It takes moving away from sort of charitable intentions to integrated priorities and really getting serious about making your leadership count. And, mm -hmm. and I love that you're connecting the dots for us. So I'd like to ask you, though, you know, connect one or two of those stories. What did you see or what did you hear? when you were working with those homicide victims or with those parents of runaway kids, you were doing that education work. What did you see or hear that really um, set the trajectory for you to become the leader that you are today? Well, um, place matters, right? And I think that that's one of the biggest things that I learned um, going into, for example, um, remembering uh, my time at De La Salle um, High School at the time, um, and talking to the young people about taking them out of experiences and building up their ability, their resilience, um, their thoughts and their self-esteem about what they could achieve and showing them and um, providing that exposure. But then having those conversations with the young people about, okay, I'm doing this while I'm with you. You're teaching us how to do these things but there's somewhere that I have to go back to. And let me tell you about where that place is. And so for me, it's how do we rebuild communities? And so that when young people do have opportunities, when they're coming back to those places and spaces, that there's, they're, they're ones that give life and they're, they're ones that will continue to allow young people to uh, blossom. We could provide all of the opportunity in the world, but if we're not getting to the root of what's happening that is causing our communities to be uh, desolate and in despair, then we're not getting to the root of the matter. So that kind of how just shifting, and then even with the Black Healthcare Coalition, they, you know, we were working a lot on the front lines of of uh, being a voice to um, a lot of the uh, the safety net hospitals and talking to them about how do we best achieve the best health outcomes. But until we went and talked to the neighborhoods and the the individuals that um, lived in communities that are experiencing these health disparities, what they wanted wasn't about. Uh, a positive response from their doctor or positive interaction. They wanted education for their children. They wanted sidewalks and streets and things of that nature. And so that's how I got into public policy was through the Black Healthcare Coalition and saying, okay, if we're going to be here another 10 years, we've been around for at that time, 20 years, what's going to be different? And it all centers around what types of policies we're able to dismantle and rebuild. Yeah, you know, you're really talking about that intersectionality of, of our life. I, I really believe that, you know, we really live our life at the intersection between place, policy, and people. And mm -hmm. in my experience, you got to have all three of those in order to have vibrant life. You got to have mm -hmm. that intersectionality, right? So when I see policy being made, like if we're looking at some of the police policy, if we're looking at some of the development policies, if we're looking at some of the things that are in the news right now, you often get solutions that are proposed where you've got the intersection between place and policy, but you leave out people and the voice of the people, or you'll have the voice of the people in the right place, but you're missing the policy. And what we've mm -hmm. got to get to, and I think that you've spoken about this so well recently, is that intersectionality. So 
I really want to get to what you've called your righteous agenda. But but before we get into the details of that, um, you're proposing as a city council member this idea of a righteous uh, a righteous agenda. But as a social leader, how do you begin? Where where did you begin in formulating a comprehensive and an intersectional plan that brings together place, people, and policy? Where does that start for you as a leader? Really a place of listening and connecting to people um, that you cannot just jump into the places where people are and begin to define them. You cannot just jump into policy, but really looking at the connection to people. We have a infant mortality program at the Black Healthcare Coalition and every mother, no matter what their social economic status is, no matter what their academic achievement levels are, they all, we all want the same things for our children. And so connecting to the people and what it is that people have for their own aspirations and how do you, um, in this instance, me asking questions of how do I insert myself into making that happen? It might not be the city council person or the school board member. It might be the activist that's out there um, in the community that is, you know, continuing to raise that protest, or it might be being a coordinator of a program, or it might be me um, really delving down into a volunteer role in which it's not I'm just showing up, but I'm shifting and creating change so that those aspirations become a reality. So for, for, for me, it really started with the connections to the people and being able to um, galvanize that into a righteous voice. Yeah, and I appreciate what you're saying though too. That you know you don't wake up as a social leader uh, and and you know have this birth of all of the ideas at once. I mean, what mm -hmm. I'm hearing you say is that it's a a process of continual activity over the course of a lifetime, over the course of a lot of listening that really you know leads you into being able to be in a place to speak confidently about a righteous agenda. Let's let's break that down because, I mean, I, first of all, I love that phrase, righteous agenda, because it speaks to me on so many different levels. Mm -hmm. But tell me about your righteous agenda. And, and in particular, as a councilwoman, educate us about what the role of the city is in making change. Oh, I'm so glad that you asked that because another piece that, you know, in order to do this work, you have to understand processes and you have to understand how to actually technically get things done. And that's different from me being an activist, um, someone who that drove me to this place. Right. Um, and now me being a governor of what deciding on who gets what and when, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it does take time. And that's kind of a drawback of the term limits for city council as we are allocating resources, we're uh, developing policies um, that help to govern people's lives on a very intimate and local level. It takes time to be able to understand how to do some of those things. And so when you think about the third district in which we have 
the highest unemployment rates. We have the the oldest hold um, the oldest uh, housing stock. We have all of these issues as it relates to uh, poverty, and we also are segregated um, in that we have the the most black and brown people that are residents of the third district. And so, when you look at the leadership that we've had, it hasn't been you know a consistently each council member being able to fulfill their eight years um, in their term. And what that means is when you don't be able to do that, it's, it's, you have to start all over from ground zero. So that's one of the challenges. But when you think about, again, developing that righteous agenda, it takes time. I've been in office, I guess, uh, for eight or nine months now, but understanding what that process is in order to get these policies passed. And so what are we looking at? We're looking at, yes, we know that Black Lives Matter, um, and we know that we have to be able to demonstrate that we have policies in place that help to address the undercurrents of what is actually happening locally and nationally when we think about um, African-Americans, descendants of slaves in America. And so looking at the lanes that the city council has to be able to operate in that, I was able to introduce and start to work on some what I believe are righteous policies. I don't know if this is a time. I don't know if you want me to go into one or two or if you have a a few of them, because you've talked about number one, I think there's seven righteous policies Mm -hmm. or righteous agenda uh, policy Mm -hmm. items. But one of them is you've talked about progressive action to, to bring police control locally. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk to us about that because there are listeners from all over the the world and all over uh, Mm -hmm. the interwebs. What you need to know if you're listening, you're not in Kansas City, especially if you are in Kansas City, is that Kansas City doesn't have control over its mm-hmm. police department locally. That's done in Jeff City in Missouri and has yes. a whole history based in what, you know, Pendergrast and, and you know, big corruption of yesteryear. But why is that important now? Why did that make number one on your righteous agenda? Sure. So uh, we were we responding to um, obviously the civil unrest that's happening, but I started this process before um, the current civil unrest as it relates to local control. We introduced this some many 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 months ago, and we were able to get um, the council to agree to be begin to look at is now the right time for uh, local control. But now that all that's what's happened, we have to progressively look at what do we do in order to gain um, local control of our police department. And so our current police board is con- is has control over from our uh, board of police commissioners. They're all appointed by the governor. And so when people say, well, you do have local control. Well, we pick, we looked up the uh, resident addresses for the individuals that are on the board of police commissioners and not everyone has a voice. And so um, you have to think about uh Taxation without representation, if you will. Um, and then at the same time, I was debating the issue several months ago um, regarding a local control with some folks that have that have been on the board of police commissioners. And I asked them, how many times have you heard from the governor regarding policing matters? matters? One person had been on the board for over 10 years and they had talked to the, the governor or a representative from Jeff City about policing matters two times, yeah. two times. I mean, if we don't have, this goes back to your point earlier, if we don't have the voice of the people in Mm -hmm. the right place, 
from the right place and shape the policies that affect the people in the place, then we really miss the mark. And I think I think that's a very important thing that you're advancing. I want to talk about the second righteous agenda item, because this one is super interesting to me. Um, you said that you want to put forward that there should be an office of, recon uh, of reconciliation that would actually review policies and things that are happening in the city. And, and Melissa, when I went to Vancouver uh, a couple of years ago, I, I was able to actually sit and visit with their um, city director or minister, whatever uh, he was called. Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, in charge of a citywide or, or regional office of reconciliation that was bringing forth um, issues and reviewing things. What is that? How would it manifest itself locally? And what would be the role of this office of reconciliation in Kansas City? Right. So um, in 1968, we had a commission that was developed to address recommendations regarding the civil unrest there. The challenge is, is oftentimes when you have these um, these um, emergent events that come up, you put together a task force, you put together some commission, they come up with some recommendations, it goes on the shelf, it goes away. This um, office has to be embedded in the way that city council in the city of Kansas City does its work and how it how what this office would be responsible for is looking at every policy uh, before it's voted on by the city council to talk about um, is it equitable? Um, what are some of the undercurrents of how it's going to impact everyone in our city? Um, and then we have to have ongoing reconciliation as it relates to bringing this city um, to a place in which everyone is valued and we can begin to reflect on what um, has happened in the past. We can begin to innovate and think about what is it that we're going to do differently. We have to stretch ourselves in that saying that, hey, we this is going to be uncomfortable and we have to elevate. And so I didn't make that reconciliation model up. I think it was made um, maybe in Alaska, but they have this rise model for reconciliation, but it needs to be embedded in everything we do at city council and not just this one-off task force that will someday go away. Well, and you took an awesome first step, I think, in your first weeks when you were on city council, mm -hmm. putting forth uh, a resolution adopting or, or that was adopting that had to do with structural racism and mental health. Tell us, tell us about what that was and how that would dovetail with this office of reconciliation that, that you're proposing. Well, again, this goes back to, you know, leading in your lane where you are when I first got on the council. And again, I still know very little, but I thought to myself, what could I do to begin to start this conversation about racism. Yes, I do have all of these ideas, all of these policies that we talked about on the campaign trail, but how do I begin to lay the foundation so that there's some common understanding and in that vein, I began to do research and um, the city of Milwaukee did something around racism as a public health uh, crisis. And I just started from there and, and really to began to dig into what that meant in Kansas City and introduce the, the, the resolution around, um, uh, around racism as a, again, a foundational point of this is what I'm here to do. I'm not here to do anything else in these eight, not when I say anything else, this is my main um, objective of being on the city council is how do we bring 
this reconciliation back um, in the community so that everyone is seen, they have value, and they have worth. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm somebody who is a huge believer in what you're putting forward. Our whole organization is called Reconciliation Services. And, you know, I think you're making another really good point for social leaders and people wanting to learn to really advance their social impact. You know, you have to pick something, right? You got to pick something that you're going to stand for and and then get educated. You know, we had a a wonderful conversation a couple episodes back with uh, Gwendolyn Grant of the Urban League, who used to work at the Urban Mm -hmm. League. And Gwen really unpacked like three or four things that you needed to do in order to become a social leader. And one of them, just like you said, you got to pick something, you got to focus. And right now, I think there's a, a lot of people that are waking up to the, the reality that race, structural racism, the issues around the need for reconciliation are uh, social determinants of health. And, mm-hmm. and they're protesting. Now, I want to talk a little bit about protests, though, because I think that there's a lot of different versions of protest. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm somebody that says, you know, what I've dedicated my life to is my protest, but Uh there's also a role for physical protest. And you were, you know, on the steps the other day at at City Hall and gave an impassioned speech and you participated in protest. Let's talk about protest. After the protests are done at City Mm -hmm. Hall, what do we need to do if we want to be social leaders to actually live a life of protest? What would that mean? What would that Absolutely. look like? And um, if it's okay, Father, if I can walk and talk so that my uh, PC does not go out uh, as it relates to my Let's bed. do it. Let's do it. I apologize. Thank you so much. So, yes, um, we do have to live um, an active life of protest in that we... Um, Make we have to make sure that, um, and I apologize for um, anybody who's not listening on Spotify. If you're on YouTube, we're getting a tour of City Hall right now. We're actually getting a tour a tour of Councilwoman Melissa's office. We've we've seen a couple of the the inner chambers now as she okay, plugs yeah. in. And I apologize. Please forgive me. You're good. Well, what you're what you're really talking about, as I give you a second to do that, I think is that we have to make it count. You know, we have to live a life. I think when people hear the word protest, some people get fired up in a good way. Some people get fired up in a negative way. And I guess that probably has to do with your lived experience. But I think what I'm asking you to speak about is really that concept of protest that is a way of life, not about necessarily aggression or signs or 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 chanting certain slogans. But when all of that is done, which is important, by the way, and I'm a believer in that. But when all of that is died out, what are we doing day to day to make a difference? And and Melissa, I think a lot of people are kind of that's where they start to lose hope. You know, like I'll say one other thing and then now that you're plugged in, I'm going to give it back to you. But look, I'm old enough to remember back to Rodney King. I'm old enough to remember back when there were protests in, in L.A. I remember when all of that happened. I remember there was great desire and hope for change. And now here we are all of these years later, what is two decades later? I don't know the exact number of years. What's changed? Mm -hmm. What's changed since those protests? Here we are in this protest now with Breonna Taylor, with George Floyd, uh, uh, you know, all these situations. How do we actually live a life of protest such that things might change, Melissa? Right. One of the things um, is, you know, we always say hashtag stay woke. And so one of the things is not being lulled back into 
um, a place of complacency, but ensuring that we are really aware of what's happening and we are inserting ourselves from an intentional place to make sure that we're bringing about a change, not um, episodic, but again, it's a discipline, right? And so when you think about um, disciplining yourselves and when we teach our children discipline about, you know, every day you got to get up and you got to make your bed and then they're disciplined to do that. Um, over time and throughout their lives. And so that's the same thing you have to start out with you being a social leader and making protest about a, a, making protest a part of who you are is how are you building that muscle and starting small to say it might just be that I'm going to come to uh, Thelma's Kitchen, you know, every Friday at 10 a.m., and talk to people and talk and, and begin to reflect on how is it that I can make things better for the individuals that I'm in relationship with, for the individuals that are in my community. But making sure that it's consistent, is not episodic, it's not something that you can get in the mundaneness of, oh, I joined this group and we meet every month and we're just... Right. Like, what are you doing to make sure that you're raising your voice and you're making a change? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's like anything, you know, it, there's a lot of different ways of protesting. I think you can be the person who's on city uh, council and, and advocating mm -hmm. like you are. You can be the person that's at the protest holding a sign. You can yeah. also be the quiet introvert who doesn't feel like being in any of those places, but who works very hard to educate herself about the right. issues and to contribute according to her strength or his strength. You know, there's yeah. a quote that I love and I want to bring in here that relates to what we're talking about. It's, it's Barbara Jordan who said, mm -hmm. what the people want is very simple. They want an America as good as its promise. Yeah. What does that mean to you in light of what we're talking about? Well, one, that there is hope, right? There is promise. There is a structure in place that we can look to. Um, and it's all about that reconciliation um, to get there. Um, what we want is thinking about how do we make America whole? And that wholeness begins with the relationships that we have for our fellow man, our fellow woman, our brother, our sister, our neighbor. Um, and so what, what we want as an African-American, as a descendant of slaves, what we want, what I want is that same opportunity, the same promise when we think about what America stands for and what America is and what America can be for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I think that gets lost on people. I really yeah. do. I think people get lost in all of the issues and all of the politics and all of the rhetoric. For goodness sake, all we're talking about, though, is that as Americans, don't we all want the same thing? For If I've got three kids, then I want them all to have the same opportunities. And when we look across our neighborhood, sure, we may not all have exactly the same stuff or exactly the same experience, but we want everybody to have, you know, the opportunity. We want everybody to be able to live into that so-called American dream that is so elusive. And, and really, I, I think you and I would agree, go further than that, the, the American dream has been engineered to be impossible for some people mm -hmm. in, in many cases. Talk to me about that. I mean, let's let's dive in a little bit on structure, on structural racism. I mean, 
Talk about the people in your district. Why mm -hmm. is it hard? What are the barriers? What are the systems in place that make it hard for them to achieve that same dream that you're talking about for America? Absolutely. One of the things on uh, my righteous agenda has to do with um, our incentive process for corporate America in that we have to look at our educational system that we have um, and how we are funding and defunding our educational system by giving uh, tax incentives to the wealthy to do development. Um, and many of these developers, all of these developers that I'm aware of, refuse to develop East of Truce. And so why would we take money away from children, our children, to give to developers when they refuse to develop the lives of the people that they are taking the money away from? So well, this look, is let's get specific. You know, third district, there are hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars being dumped into developing on Truce. There's a La Quinta Hotel now at 24th and Truce, if you didn't mm -hmm. know, you know, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sitting at the corner of 31st and Truce, uh, right smack dab in the middle of what used to be the Porter Slave Plantation. I'm, I'm a stone's throw from where the, the big house was 200 years ago or 1831. And I am now engulfed in a $70 million development. And, mm -hmm. and now look, all development, I don't think all development is bad, but if we aren't working first to prioritize the people, all the progress that we make is for nothing, right? Yeah. Uh, we're and just all, moving people. And all I'm saying is we want to incentivize development in the city of Kansas City, but let's not do it at the expense of children and their future, because what that is, is racism. Okay, so unpack yeah. that. You know, there's there's well, a great. Have, well, I wanted to put a pause there because yeah. I wanted that to sink in for people. Say it again. Let's say it again. <laughs> so what that is when you incentivize development and take away funding from children in districts that are predominantly black and brown, that's racism. And so, if I have to unpack it, I can. I can break it down, <laughs> but the reality of it is, is that we are taking funding property taxes from districts in which academic achievement is not being obtained. And it's not all about money. It's not all about um, dollars and cents. However, if we can adequately resource our educational centers, when you look at Lincoln, if you will, Lincoln High School is one of the number one high schools in the state of Missouri. They are heavily resourced. One of the reasons why we don't have many more Lincolns is because of the resources that we need. When you think about crime and violence um, in the third district, and the intersections between mental health and crime and violence, guess what? When we take those real tax dollars, property taxes away from our schools, we're also taking it away from our mental health fund. So uh, where and, is the balance? That's all I'm saying is it's not a you know anti-development, anti-developer. At some point, we have to have a balance in which we everyone has what they need to be successful the developer the children 
Yeah, we have to work hard, I hear you saying, to really have all ships rise together, which isn't going to happen just by market forces, at least not the way that I see it. I mean, the market is is really an amoral thing. It takes moral men and women to move the market in a moral direction. But so often, I think we're just allowing the market to run where it's going to go, because that's kind of the American way. We don't want to have too much you know, legislation or restriction. But, you know, there are times when I think we do need to stop and agree as a community and say, look, these kids are important. Their education is important, not just because of who they are, which should be enough. But if we have to speak about the return on investment, look, this is a superior growth model for the region. If we're going to have people, right? And the thing that you have to think about is if we let the market decide, we wouldn't be taking any money away from our children that because we would not be incentivizing development. We would allow those developments to go without public subsidy. So we are intervening to give taxes to the wealthy and the rich by taking them away from the poor. That's just point blank and period. Well, you make some really challenging points, and I, I wish we had four hours to unpack all of it, but I want to get to a couple other things, and, and I'm sure we'll get a lot of feedback in the comments on this, and I, I'm looking forward to that discussion. But uh, you know, as a leader, when you're facing the kind of huge challenges like we're talking about now, I think there's always this nagging temptation to just give up, to give in. And if others are listening to the podcast right now and, you know, they're feeling like they're exhausted. They want to give mm-hmm. up. They want to give in. What are two or three things that, that they can do to, to stay in the fight? Oh, that is a hard, that is definitely a hard question. Um, but, you know, always centering yourself back to the reason why you're in this work. And relationships are so critical and so important. And going back to the relationships that you have with people um, and the the why of of you doing this work is so critical and important. So just making sure also that you're taking care of yourself because um, it definitely is not it's it's a very um, it's a very hard process in terms of just um, being able to give all of yourself and oftentimes things don't change as fast as you would like them to change. You have to give yourself grace. I was in a meeting just today and I was like, oh my gosh, I you know, really could have done so much better. I could have done things differently. It's good to have the, the improvement, but also to give yourself grace as you do this work. But I cannot underscore, you know, relationships, 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 because those are the individuals that you'll be able to go back to and they will be able to refuel you and be able to remind you um, of your why. The other thing that I would um, encourage people to do is to start very small in that don't try to bite off, you know, oh, I'm going to go down and I'm going to get, you know, a hundred million dollars from the city government to do X, Y, and Z. But perhaps it's, you know, I want to be able to put some park benches in the park in my neighborhood? And how is it that I can convince and encourage and influence to get those $25,000 park benches? And so just really try to, you know, connect with other people. There is an African proverb is that if you want 
to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And that net of relationships is what's going to be able to carry you through. Yeah, I really appreciate that quote. It's one of my favorites. And I think it's one of those truths that we always forget or that we often forget in the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, we get caught up in something. We get so passionate about it. And, yeah. and then all of a sudden we're out there and we find out like, oh, wait, I didn't wait long enough to think right. about people, mm-hmm. place, and policy, and the people, right? We mm-hmm. lose that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I always end every podcast, Melissa, with this question. And, I, and I, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. What do leaders listening need to do if they want to step up their social leadership, step up their social impact to become social leaders? What do they need to do? You need to open your eyes. You need to open your eyes and not just see what you think you see going on, but really see the people that are around you, the places that are around you. And what decisions can you help to influence to make things better? But we need to be able to see and hear and really think about how do we insert ourselves um, in a way that is going to make a difference. We know that leadership, one of the most important things that... Um, I learned about leadership. And let me just share with you two. They're very quick. One is leadership is about disappointing people at the rates that they can tolerate. And so leadership does not come without disappointment. Um, And so we have to be able to measure the heat along the way. Um, And then finally, my most important lesson is like leadership is about doing what's necessary. Because oftentimes we have this connotation in our mind of what needs to happen, but you have to step back and say, okay, what's the necessary thing that I need to do in order to move this thing forward? So you have to be willing to do that reflection and step in there and doing what's necessary. Well, Councilwoman Melissa Robinson, thank you for those Uh, good words and that powerful send-off so that we can all become better social leaders. And thank you again so much for spending ample time with us. And for those of you that were watching online, thanks for the tour of your office at the same time. (laughs) Thank you. You bet. We look forward to hearing back from you again. And please keep up the great work that you're doing, especially if you're here in Kansas City in the third district where we we really need your leadership. Thank you so much. We'll We'll be right back to you. Absolutely. Well, my friends, uh, you have been with us for yet one more episode of the Social Leader Podcast. Thanks again for listening today. And if you like today's podcast, I have a big favor to ask of you. Please follow the podcast on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or or wherever you get your podcasts and hit that like button. This is really going to help us to share the show with more people. You can also tune in to watch the show live on Reconciliation Services Facebook page, on every Tuesday right around 12.30 Central. So lastly, I want to make sure that you know about a new program that's launching soon. If you like today's show, there is a brand new e-course that can help teach you to learn to lead with greater social impact. You can go to thesocialleader.org, sign up to find out more about this new e-course called The Social Leader Essentials, launching really soon. 
answer a few short questions and one of our team members is going to reach out to you to see if the course is right for you. So thanks again. And until next time, thank you again to my guest, Melissa Robinson. And I look forward to being with you next week. Learn to lead with greater social impact. Thanks, everyone. Miles was a girl